You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 155, Jim Bowman and the Heart of the Father. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here, downloading, and most of all, listening. Friends, uh, this is an interesting episode. I can't wait to tell you just a little bit about that. But before I do, I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet jumped onto our mailing list, uh, please do that. You can go to... um, my website, ericnevins.com slash uh, mad at God. It's a little PDF download that I created called What to Do When You're Mad at God. So you can get that for free, but also uh, just hop on the mailing list so you never miss an episode. I know that your podcast app, of course, will let you know when we have an episode, uh, but also love to communicate with you, let you know about things that we're doing uh, every single uh well, I don't quite email every week, but uh, periodically I send things out. So I promise I'm not going to spam you or fill up your inbox. Just want to let you know and keep in touch with you. So if that sounds interesting to you, you listen often, I uh, would love to have you on board for the journey because uh, I'd like to be part of yours. Okay, so this episode today is a very interesting conversation with a gentleman named Jim Bowman. He's been a missionary, shared the gospel all over the world. We talk a lot about a couple different things. One is the theme of fatherhood, uh, because his father has a very interesting story, which I won't give away. I'll just say it involves grand larceny, <laughs> and uh, you can listen to that. Then, um, kind of how he does he wrestle with with God being his father in light of uh, who his earthly father was. But then also we talk about uh, the ways that he ministered to uh, different peoples. Uh, around the world, particularly us, as we grow into being a more audio-based culture. Audio is about to, it's blowing up right now. You're listening to a podcast, you know that. Uh, then what, how, how do we share the gospel with one another? Um, he's shared the gospel around the world, teaching people uh, how, to, how to memorize scripture and to convey the story of scripture uh, through 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 language um, that's not written. So very interesting. I think you guys will enjoy that. Um, so here's the conversation. Here's here's my talk with uh, Jim Bowman. I hope you guys enjoy it. Jim, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Very glad to be able to speak with you today. Yeah, we're, we've been looking forward to it for a while, and I'm glad that we have a chance to connect here. The the oral culture is like that's a really fascinating thing. We had we had a good conversation about it yeah. before. Tell us about well, that a little bit. Um an oral culture people the four point five billion people are oral peoples or oral learners. Mm-hmm. And we can't communicate to them in ways that here in the United States we communicate. Um we work with them in terms of stories and music, and drama, and dialogue uh, about the story. And so that is what we call, you know, an oral approach to oral peoples. Yeah. Yeah, very fascinating. It's it's kind of a problem if we don't have the ability to pr- connect with people uh, and tell, tell the story. If all we're thinking we're going to do is give them a Bible or try to work in a, in a text and they 
don't process information that way. Correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that process, um, we learned, uh, my wife and I started off uh, in Mexico and eventually went to India and then all over the world. We were in probably uh, 50 countries in all. But um, this uh, feeling of being called uh, to missions, what I got at an early age, uh, around 25, 27, and um, when I was first saved, really, at a Billy Graham crusade. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I want to hear about that. So let's let's dig into that. So um, let's start out. And so where, where did you grow up and kind of what was your family life like? Uh, well, I grew up in San Diego, California. Okay. And, uh, but I moved as a young man, uh, married to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And at around in 1974, I went to a Billy Graham crusade. And I came from a troubled background. My father was a ringleader of five who heisted the Krupp Diamond. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, in a daring holdup, uh, he was the key man that kind of organized the whole thing. And, but I was, that was a troubling background for me. So I went in search of what my real identity was. I really didn't know who I was and yeah. what I was doing. And so uh, I went to the Billy Graham crusade in search of that. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into Billy Graham, cause I want to, I want to just unpack this a little bit. So you, you, when did you find out that your father was, Really, I think it was something I, you sent me, uh, you said that he was a con man. So when did you figure out that that was who he was? Well, I didn't. He lived a double life. He was a golf pro by day, and he was a con man by night. And he really fooled me and my mother and my two brothers. We grew up not knowing that he led a double life. And then one day when I was 10... He left us all. He dropped us off at my grandmother's house, and he took off. And from there, uh, he started organizing the theft of the Krupp diamond. Wow! Yeah, and this is like a really famous diamond, though. Yeah, like this is—it's uh, got a name. Is a diamond that was bought uh, eventually by Elizabeth Taylor, uh, and it was uh, a Krupp. The Krupp Diamond became famous when my dad stole it because <laughs> wow. it was on the front pages of newspapers all over the country. It wow. was a 33 carat diamond, and um, he was um, responsible for this this heist. And it was in broad daylight. And when Vera Krupp, who was the owner of the diamond, was home at her at her ranch in Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, it's an, uh, kind of a detailed uh, story that it really kind of uh, is very interesting. I've got it in my book, Finding My Real Father. Uh, so I, I can't like, wow, if we get into the, the nitty gritty stuff. Yeah, yeah. We don't probably take us three hours to tell. We, we don't have to get into all that. But what's interesting about it is, is I think obviously it's fascinating that, you know, he steals this really famous diamond or it became famous because he stole it. Um, and then obviously Elizabeth Taylor 
I'm looking at a picture right now of Elizabeth Taylor with this thing on her hand and just, uh, yeah, there you go. my uh-huh. goodness. Right. So the they estimate it's valued at about $9.2 million today. Right. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it gives you some perspective. Okay. So all of that, right? So he's not, in, not having a lack of ambition, right? Is, is your dad. Right. But then in, um, 1967, um, he gets out of jail. Okay. Uh, but before then, in 1964, um, he was let out of jail uh, by Justice William O. Douglas, who let him out of jail to appeal his case before the Supreme Court. And he went before it. And eventually, that's when I came to know him, my father, again. Uh, he, he left us from before, but he showed up at my doorstep. And um, there is where I realized, wow, I am the son of a famous diamond thief. Wow. So, and would I become and follow in his footsteps or would I become something different? Oh, man, what a powerful question. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it really was. Really important, too. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to matter what direction you choose in your life. Okay. Well, Interesting. So you kind of had this built-in identity issue. Crisis. Yeah, crisis with your dad because you don't know, okay, yeah. am I like that? Okay. And I, and I spent a year with him, um, uh, living with him, and he told me step-by-step step everything from the time he left our house and dropped us off at my grandmother's when I was 10 years old until this is now eight years later and – Las Vegas, and I go to live with him, and he tells me every night what what's went on all those years. So I have it fairly, and I I made a tape recording of it, and I really have good notes and wow, and, and uh, the newspaper articles and everything were just wow. uh, um, it was really you know pretty shocking to me, and I walked into the Billy Graham crusade with a major crisis. Yeah. How many years later is that? Um, it's about uh, eighteen. It's about eight years later. Okay, eight years later, you're you're a Billy Graham. Okay, so you got all these fatherhood questions, all these questions about your dad, and that, and you walk into Billy Graham. And so how how did that go? I heard Billy Graham just preach a very basic message. It wasn't anything special, but I re- remembered one thing that he that he said. You know that my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And that's uh, found in John 10, 27. And I was ready to follow him. Um, and um, so it, it was uh, the beginning point of my walk with God and my, my journey, as you would call it. Yeah. Yeah. So you realized just from Billy Graham's preaching that, Hey, I'm going to go ahead and I want, I want this. And it sounds like you had already made a choice to live a different life. Um, well, I think it was the Holy spirit because, uh, Hmm. and you know, the Bible verse that, you know, grabbed me, uh, also Romans grabbed me and it's, and it's in verse two. And I mean, excuse me. Yeah. Romans two 15. And he says he's written his 
he has written his law on our hearts and mm-hmm. our consciences also bear witness to it. So I, I would put those two things together. And I always knew that, you know, God does speak to all of us uh, by means of our conscience. Uh, he has made our conscience to obey him, but sometimes uh, we just choose to ignore it. And so, you know, kind of, um, it's a moral compass that he gives us, you know, it's a moral voice from within and it's within everybody. Uh, as I traveled all over the world, um, this thing that we call a conscience, um, everybody has it. I mean, Mm. everywhere in the world, murder is murder. It's all, it's against the law and it's sinful and it's evil. Yeah. Um, Lying is wrong, and stealing is wrong, and envy and hate and sexual sin, you name it, it's wrong. And I know it. I knew it then. I know it now. And so you either choose to obey your voice from within, or you don't. And I just was tired of the excuses my father was giving me, and uh, I wanted to obey that voice from within. Wow. Yeah, that is that is great. Okay, so you give your life to Christ at the Billy Graham Crusade. You then had to grow from there. So where did your where did you start to find some discipleship or were there people who brought you in under their wing or what what happened from there? Yeah. Well, I had, you know, some uh I joined the church called Grace Chapel and um by this time I'm in Tucson, Arizona. And, um, but my early experiences were in Tucson at Grace Chapel. And there was a, um, just a point of, I guess, collision with the word and with myself when there was a great earthquake that happened in Guatemala. And this church that I belonged to, uh, was, uh, a missionary church. It was run by a missionary family. And uh, the church sent some people down to Guatemala to um, kind of, there was all of this earthquake and the Lord just kind of prompted me to get behind it and to help those people that this was really what I felt was the real nitty gritty of Christianity. Put it into action. All the things that you learn, you had to put into action or it was like, you know, like James says, it's just noise right so so yeah yes okay so that was how you first uh, was that your first uh overseas trip uh well yeah and then i it was a follow-up trip in um mexico i went to durango mexico to visit the churches uh it it supported a bible school down there and uh so i went to durango and i got as their photographer. And I just uh, started, um, at the time I was working for the Las Vegas, I mean, excuse me, uh, the Tucson star and the citizen. And, um, what happened was I went down there and took some pictures and just really had a real compassion for what I saw and what I heard. And, and it just transformed my life. So I was, uh, by this time, um, ready to 
kind of entertain what missions would be like, but I didn't have exactly the right formula of how to get there and what you do and all that stuff to to make your way down all the way. Because I was feeling called to Mexico, though. Inexplicable, (laughs) really. Yeah. So you you were feeling like you need to go there, but you were always starting to feel like just missions in general. God is calling you. Um. Yeah. Well, it really started in Mexico because um, it's a kind of a long story, but the short story, I guess, would be that uh, I became interested in Wycliffe Bible translators who were involved. The Mexico branch of of Wycliffe Bible Translators was in Tucson, Arizona, where I was living. And I got involved with them, and I became very interested in what they do because I realized that uh, through uh, Bible translation, you can reach people by putting something in their own language. And wouldn't it be nice if all everybody had a Bible in their own language? Yeah. So I became interested in that, and one thing led to another, uh, which uh, was really kind of a, uh, I guess you would call my calling. Was there were there any other like people who kind of discipled you in that or helped you kind of no study scriptures? Uh, which there was. Oh, interesting. I can yeah, tell you what kind of sparked my interest. And my wife and I were invited by a small group of Mistec Indians to Mexico, uh, and uh, it's Mexico, Oaxaca is the state, and it's all the way down 2,000 miles from, from my uh, town in uh, Arizona. So we hiked into the village, and the conch shell sh- sounded, and um, they, that announced our arrival in the village. And so we lined ourselves up. All the people wanted a New Testament. And the next day, a group of believers were kind of gathered around, and they were looking at these New Testaments that we'd given them the night before. And one man holding up his New Testament, and he, he drew closer to me, and he said, uh, gee, um, what language is this written in? I don't recognize it. And I said, wow. Uh, it kind of took me by surprise. Um, uh, I said that, You know, the book was written by John uh, Daly. He was a Wycliffe Bible translator, and he wrote the book in your own language. And and then he said, yeah, but, sir, I can't read. Uh, And this was a problem that I never expected to hear. And um, but, you know, in their poverty and, and their backward living far off, far and away. They didn't get much education. And so I realized for the first time that, that a bunch of people can't read. And so how do we get that book into their own language? Yeah. Which is a a really tremendous problem. And I think, what was the number you said earlier? Four, four billion or something? Yeah. There are 4 billion at least that are, do not read. And about another Probably two to one to two billion can can read, but they don't really prefer reading. They prefer to read, to listen, or to talk. 
And they, so we call those people oral learners. It's just sort of a missions term yeah. that's come up in the last few years. Well, and here's the thing. Unless, if, unless, lest we think that it's unusual, right? Uh, here's the reality. In our, even in our own culture, audio is becoming much bigger, right? Yes. So like, yeah. there are people saying that they think the audio industry is going to grow by 10 times over the next few years because yeah. – People in we're we're putting in our headphones and we can do other things while we're doing it and so yeah well faith comes by hearing and <laughs> hearing by the word of God <laughs> right right so you know what can you say yeah that is definitely a huge a huge piece okay well interesting but our problem though was these people did not have any technology they did not have yeah. Radios. They did not have even cassette players, and we experimented with various kinds of of tools to help them. and And I could I imported in some some cassette players, and and I experimented with that over the years. and uh, And so it was like uh, it was still a problem. So what we what we taught them to do eventually was to learn to memorize the story and tell a story, a Bible story, and then have short conversations about the story. And, and then we taught them how to dramatize it and how to uh, not only do dramas, but to do music. And then we combined drama, music, and storytelling into one package. Not only took probably about 20 years to figure it out. <laughs> right. Well, interesting. Okay, well, where, where did that lead you then? Well, that began to lead us to finding out, well, what language is this that they speak? And is there a translator in the area that could possibly go down there? Or should we go down there? Should we go together or anything like that? Mm-hmm. And so this man, uh, John Daly, we found out, was the translator, and he was living right there in my hometown of Tucson, Arizona. Wow. In fact, he was the director of the Mexico branch of uh, Tucson, Arizona, the, the Mexico branch. But it was it's kind of, again, a long uh, story, but they were kicked out of Mexico because at that time there was a lot of going on with Leftist, leftist government of Mexico really didn't want anything to do with missionaries and anything like that. So they kicked them all out of the country. Yeah, okay. So were you still able to go, though, because you weren't with an agency? Or? Exactly. We were yeah. able to go because we weren't with an agency. Yeah, interesting. Right. So we went down and uh, we met this group. Um, and so we were just, uh, we didn't know what we were doing, to be truthful. But, uh, but through that experience that I, I related to you earlier, um, God just put on our hearts that, you know what, we need to find a way of communicating uh, the truth, the Bible, uh, in ways that are user-friendly to them, and you can't use any technology to do it. How, can you, how, how could you do that? Mm-hmm. And that was really kind of 
a real challenge because we we use technology, we use the radio, we use tapes or or CDs or or whatever podcasts, but they didn't have any of that. So what do you do? So we eventually wound up with some doing a lots of different kinds of experiments because what's the, you know, we couldn't, for example, we translated the Jesus film into their language. Yeah. And here's all this technology. We've got uh, a, we needed a projector. We needed a sound system. We needed a screen and we needed kind of uh, to be able to, you know, speak to the crowd. And, and so that required a microphone and all sorts of equipment that yeah. they didn't have. Right. So, and it, we just eventually come to realize we can't introduce things to these people if it's not reproducible, if it's just getting a few believers started, that's, that's fine. But how do they reproduce themselves? And I was interested in a movement of people, not just taking, you know, and gaining a few uh, kind of converts all by themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you're trying to figure out, okay, how do we communicate this in an age or in a place where we can't use all kinds of technology? And then, so that's where you start to figure out music and, Right. And, and so I find, and I finally realized through, again, some experiments that we, we did with many different groups, we learned that, um, that these people can memorize. They have a photographic memory. Mm. They can hear it and they hear it once or twice, and then they can retell it just like they heard it. Wow. And we were just shocked and amazed that these people could do that. Because they have to, right? They, well, they practice. They had a little tape recorder inside. Yeah. And, they, and that's all they had was their, quote, oral tradition. Right. And they had to, they, in this way, they wound up kind of learning what their history was and they could recount their whole tribal history. Wow. And what was even more amazing is that we started going to other parts of the world. We sent, the Lord sent me to India first. And I, I realized that this same, um, the same ability to memorize just on the basis of hearing it a couple of times was Evident, it was true in Mexico and in all these countries in, in Africa. And all of a sudden, you realize that these people that have a quote oral tradition, they all have the same thing this memory. <laughs> right. Wow, that's fascinating. So, that is, that is maybe a part of the human being that we don't really take advantage of in, in 21st century America. Exactly. Yeah, although there are a lot of people. We had a pop culture con here in Denver a couple weeks ago. There's a lot of people who can remember all the details of their favorite anime or something. Right, <laughs> Different right. TV shows. They and function in that, that way. That's very true. But, you know, when you think about the detail that's necessary to preserve the Word of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, yet another thing. And so we kind of eventually 
came up with a systematic method of teaching uh, everybody how to tell stories, and we called it bridges mm. because it was bridging the the oral culture and the book culture into one kind of thing. Yeah, can you give that to us briefly? Just like, how did you do it? Just quickly. Well, um, basically, we gathered together uh, believers who wanted to learn how to tell stories because they all love stories. Everybody loves a story. Right. In fact, you're urging me right now to tell stories. I am. And uh, There's a reason for that. <laughs> and so that those stories, uh, we needed to to pass on this information systematically, though, because if you didn't carefully learn uh, the Bible, uh, really almost on a word for word basis, then you would not have a Bible by the time you passed it around to ten people. Pretty soon, it would just be corrupt, very corrupt. Right. I was wondering about that. So what's the, how do you combat the telephone effect, right? Because that's going to be what happens. Well, we, we teach them how you carefully learn the, to repeat the story over and over again as exactly. And we, we, the, the observers who can read, we, we follow along with them word for word and check them if they can tell it correctly. And so we learn it in class that way, and then they tell it back that way. And then there's a, there's a systematic approach. For example, in India, we have a Bible school that teaches. It's called the Orality Institute uh, and it, of Leadership, and it just goes and systematically teaches oral learning uh, of the Bible. Wow. Okay, give me a time when somebody you you were teaching them how to do this or you were teaching them bible and they just they just kind of blew you away or like you felt like god said yes these are my people or i don't know what anything like that what's oh i i tell you it was there are so many stories that um that it's just amazing but i say i would say the common uh maybe comment we got after class was over was why didn't you bring this to us years and years ago. Wow. Uh, because we just, we love to tell stories. And why didn't anybody teach us this? Ugh. And so um, it both encourages me and it makes me sad <laughs> that there weren't missionaries out there who were teaching Bible storytelling because vast numbers of people uh, need to hear the word of God like this. Yeah. And it's not, not a magic. There's nothing magic about it, except that you have to just discover that these people prefer oral. And so there's ways to teach them. And we have bridges one, bridges two, bridges three. Yeah. We have, we have a whole leadership thing on, on uh, uh, the, another course that's called, uh, you know, freedom to lead and so forth. So it's, it's just, uh, well, I would just say it to discover the learning that people learn through oral means is just a revelation. And there's a lot of people five, four or 5 billion people out there that learn that way. Right. What fascinates me 
is uh, just, I guess, let's think about the last 200 years just specifically, or maybe three, where in the West, we were a very book-based culture, a very written word-based culture. Correct. Um, and so we've been developing, particularly after the printing press, developing books. I mean, I got a shelf, I got multiple shelves right behind me of just thousands of them. And, uh, at the same time, then we're trying to bring this as if this is the only way we can bring the gospel, trying to bring the scriptures to people, um, to oral cultures. When the reality is the Bible was given to us by oral cultures, Correct. Those stories don't come to us in print for a long time until well, after the after they had been given. Yeah, as a matter of fact, after uh, Calvary and the resurrection, uh, the Bible was not written down for from for fifty years to a hundred years right. after the event. Yeah, the New Testament specifically, like most of the New Testament, would be. Probably right. within Talking within that New Testament. right within that uh, period, right in the first century or so. But even still, to uh, to even the Old Testament days, most of the people had were not literate. In fact, in Israel, only five percent of the people were literate. Wow! So you know you had a huge. So Jesus spoke in parables and stories. Because that's what, that's how they learned. So we teach people that Jesus first was a storyteller. Wow. He told all these parables and he told these, all these really simple stories that illustrate what he was, came to earth to, to show us. And, and it's just really very simple. It's yeah. not a complicated thing. No, which is fascinating. That's really Really an interesting take. I'm I'm kind of with you. I'm excited and also a little grieved at the same time. Right. But in these last days, you know, God is just pouring out his spirit and he's teaching us in a lot of new ways. And so, um, you know, the, the young people today, I think, are oral learners. And they should be learning by way of stories about the Bible and learning to, like, at least hear them and and tell that and in you know for example um, in uh, modern days we value drama an awful lot I mean everything on film and and so forth um, there are people out there who are starting to put Jesus's stories in video and audio form. Yeah, and they're singing about it, and they're they're dancing, and they're they're just telling the whole package as one story. And so, uh, one story is really what they need to hear: the meta story, the overarching story of the Bible from creation right. all the way to Revelation. They really need to hear the whole thing. Yeah. Amen. Man, I love that. Okay. So I want to go back to your, cause I love your work here, but I want to go back to your journey because. Uh, sure. Uh, what, so I'm, I'm curious cause I know that eventually you kind of have this thing where you're, you're discovering God is your father. But before that, was there any kind of um, like, did you ever 
have a time when you felt like God was far away or that he was kind of, kind of absent yeah. or go through some hard times? Yeah. I have, I had a lot of trouble uh, with the Lord when I lost my faith or I seemed to have lost my way uh, because I was married uh, really young in, in life. And uh, my wife, um, decided to leave me after I became a Christian, after the Billy Graham crusade, she wanted to leave me because she couldn't stand being with a person who read the Bible all the time and talked with God and was all this. And she just said, you know what? I've had it. I can't, I can't live with somebody who goes to church all the time and just doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't seemingly, uh, do the things that he used to do. You know, this guy that I've become, and uh, then uh, three months after uh, I moved out, uh, my first wife, Maureen, uh, she got breast cancer. Uh, in fact, four, stage four breast cancer. And uh, she was dead within a few years. Oh, wow. And so um, I had some, you know, two kids to raise um, as a single person. And that was kind of like a big uh, trauma in my life. And I really prayed to the Lord and I asked him, you know, what, what, why was he doing what he was doing? Yeah. And why didn't he heal my, my wife? And uh, it just seemed like my whole world was coming, crashing down upon me. And, um, so I, uh, I prayed, and I got involved with a group called If My People. And it's a, it was a group in the, at the time, this is 1976, when uh, everybody was, um, there were lots of kind of musicals and things like that. And this was a, a call to the nation to, from Second Chronicles 714. Yeah. If my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. And so I joined that movement and I just really did a lot of soul searching and and I felt like God had abandoned me. But I think that uh, it was through that and just some baby steps that he took to reassure me that he was real and he was alive in my, if I just would listen to him. So I, I used that little uh, voice within me, that mm. conscience yeah. that said, you know what? Um, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve man and the world or are you going to serve God? And so I just made a determination. It was just sheer deciding but rather than being driven by my emotions i was driven by the word of god that said no you should pick the lord's way yeah yeah which is really important especially when you go through those trials like that because those that's how he kind of refines us right and you know i think it's um there were a lot of things that I didn't understand about the Word of God, and and, sure. I, and it took, you know, several years of me working through, 
you know, all of these, I mean, like I didn't understand grace and I didn't understand forgiveness and I didn't, there was just so much. So, um, you know, well, it takes a little time, right? It takes, it takes a little bit sometimes and that's okay. It takes time. Yeah. You have to simulate all that. Wow. Okay. So now take us into your, your journey of fatherhood with kind of how, uh, God became your, your father. You discovered him as your father as compared to your earthly father. I think I began to be aware of that. There is just this, this small voice from within that I talked about earlier and that, that it's like, you can either listen to it or you, or you don't. Right. And if you listen to that thing that we call that the world calls conscience, um, it will guide you. There's not a, there's not a secret to it. Uh, and he guided me to the right people who could help me. And uh, there was a guy who was a pastor that kind of guided me through and, and really did some counseling with me. And he taught me about grace a little bit more deeply than what I'd learned in the church. And he, uh, unpacked a lot of things about for, uh, forgiveness and unforgiveness and how unforgiving, you know, your past could just yeah. really be a real, what he called a root of bitterness could, could go inside you. Right. Wow. So, so I learned that, you know, I got to release that or it would just eat me up. So I think over time I was able to, uh, to learn about forgiveness. And so when I finally, um, you know, gave my life wholly, you know, I would say probably over a period of six or eight years, it took me to really let go of all of my past. Yeah. Uh, well, interesting. Okay. So that's, that's what I was interested in. Did, so you feel like you dealt with that pretty quickly as you became well, a Christian, over, or was I don't it? No, I mean, how you, in other words, for with forgiving my father, yes. Okay. Uh, that was kind of, you know, either, either you do or you don't. And so <laughs> right. I just kind of really kind of made look, you, I just saw the necessity, just not only for his sake, but for my sake, I needed yep. to forgive my father. So then I could easily then kind of slide over and say, yeah, my heavenly father is my father. Mm, okay. I was able to see the connection that he was in scripture. We were told he is our father. He was our original father that made us. Right. But so what I'm wondering is like, did you ever have a time where you felt like God was not, you know, you have this idea. A lot of times our ideas of who God is are shaped by our father. So did, yeah. did you have to um, wrestle with that at all, or maybe, maybe not? If yeah. not, it's okay. Oh, for sure. No, I mean, um, I think it's just some basic things. I mean, like yeah. communication, like, for example, my father, because he led a double life, he was very non-communicative. He wouldn't tell you all the things that were going on. Yeah, And so he led this double life. So it was full of lies and deception and uh, double talk, and so on and so forth. And so I, uh, I just got to the point where I just said, 
you know, do I want to be like that? Or do I want to be like a, like my heavenly father who doesn't tell Mm. me any lies? He doesn't, isn't deceptive. He tells the truth always. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Well, interesting. So that sounds sort of like a rich dad, poor dad situation. Uh, I don't know if you ever read that, but it's kind of <laughs> right. like, look, there's my rich dad and he tells me how the world really works. And there's right. my poor dad who, who is operating under a different assumption. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Well, very good. Jim, I love what you're just talking about the, the oral nature of sharing the gospel in the places that you have. Uh, friends, you can go pick up Jim's book. Um, it is called Building Bridges to Oral Cultures, Journeys Among the Least Reach, which is where you tell some of these stories. And you have a new book coming out. Um, yeah. as Finding My well, Real Father. Finding My Real Father, yeah, which is why we're talking about that. So definitely, um, friends, you can go to the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com and get uh, links to those as well. Uh, Jim, anything you want to leave us with? Well, I would just say that, you know, um, I've talked about the unreached and unengaged peoples. And I just want to make a pitch to uh, really your listeners to say, uh, when we talk about unreached, I know we look about and we think, well, there's just so many people that are unreached. But, uh, but I would just say that in the world, Uh, there's a bunch of us who are concerned about reaching the unreached. And we also, we name them, we know where they're at. We know how big the group is. We know how many people are accepting the gospel and how many are not. And we have a whole bunch, a long list that you could find on the Joshua Project that shows you how many uh, people, and there's probably about over 2,000 people groups that um, are considered unreached and they need to hear the word of God. And so I would just uh, appeal to those of your listeners that no matter where they're from to, to pray for them, to give to causes that are to the unreached and to uh, consider, uh, you know, just the, urgency because the gospel must be preached in all the world and then the end will come. And that's where uh, we are uh, at this present moment. We we're getting that list down further uh, because America has had many, many opportunities to hear the gospel. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Now, whether they obey it or not is another thing. But we know that all the unreached, unengaged are people, vast numbers of people who never have heard. Right. So they deserve our attention and our, and our uh, just need. They have so many needs. Right. And that may not be for everyone, but there may be someone listening to this who gets it, gets a hold of it. Here's your story is inspired to go, you know what, there are so many people out there that need to hear the gospel, and how do I go? And if that's you, friends, go ahead and um, just do some research. Joshua Project is a great place to start. 
start finding out and ask the Lord. I'm willing to commit this to him. Ask the Lord what he wants you to do and where he wants you to go. And if he wants you to go there, he'll take you there. And there's a people group maybe that he's already chosen for you to serve and reach. And here's the beautiful thing is it's not like it was 100 or 150 years ago, right? We're not bringing our Western culture along with uh, the gospel. We're bringing just Christ. And there's way uh, there's far newer and uh, better ways of sharing the gospel um, that people are, are using today. And you can be part of it. So if God's calling you, uh, just ask him. Ask him what he wants you to do and see what happens next. Well, Jim, hey, thanks so much for being here and sharing a little bit of your story, brother. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm going to do a little more reading about this diamond because I think that's uh, pretty fascinating. And uh, you don't get to meet somebody who's the son of a famous diamond thief every day. But more interesting is that you are the son of the king and God has done some great things in you. Amen. All right. Thanks, brother. Thanks so much.